Hello, and welcome to Outer Spaces, a podcast dedicated to empowering designers and contractors in the outdoor living space. Through this show, we hope to create a powerful resource for you, someone who is trying to grow their company but might not have all the tools and processes to do so. On Outer Spaces, we are passionate about breaking the chains of small mindsets and helping contractors just like you take control of their businesses and their lives. My name is Joshua Gillow. And I'm Dwayne Drawn. Through our 40 years of combined dirt under the nails experience, we look forward to sharing tips, strategies, and other contractor success stories here on the Outer Spaces podcast. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello, and welcome back to the Outer Spaces podcast. This is your host, Joshua Gillow, alongside my trusty sidekick, Dwayne Drawn. How you doing, Dwayne? Man, I'm pretty good, man. Just enjoying the day. The weather finally broke. The clouds are gone. The sun is out. And we're all bitching about how hot it is already. It only took two <laughs> days to make that happen. <laughs> do, do pilots bitch about how hot it is when they fly, you know, at 5,000 feet or anything? Uh, Yeah, because believe it or not, when it's hot outside, it's really bumpy. Especially okay. on takeoff and coming out. So it's like, you know I mean, a lot of times when you see temperatures around 90, 95, I'm sort of laughing like they have no clue how horrible this takeoff is going to feel. You yeah. mean, especially when you're flying commercially. But you know I mean, because hot air is thin. You know I mean, like hot air is real thin. The molecules are spread apart and cold air is thick. So when you have those hot days and you're transitioning to hot and cold, you're actually transitioning from hot and cold, hot and hot and cold, hot and cold. So what does that sound like? Bumpy, 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 bumpy. So yeah. whenever you, you felt that turbulence coming in for landing, I mean, that's what's going on because hot air is real thin. So I did do some flying this weekend, got up uh, Saturday and Sunday. Really nice. Uh, got some greasers, smooth landing, got some nice sightseeing. It was a good weekend. So I got to fly. So I'm happy this week. That's awesome. That's awesome. So hopefully you've got some energy left here. We have a very special guest coming on the podcast today. He's the CEO of Windy City Equipment Services, a restaurant equipment repair and HVAC company. From his beginning as a technician, he rose to the ranks to become CEO, helping to grow his company from just him and his dad to 50 plus employees. From 2014 to 2020, Windy City's annual revenue rose from 1.2 million to 8 million. And the company that was named in the Inc. 5000 list as the fastest growing company and one of the fastest growing companies in America in 2018, 19, and 20. He's also the author of Blue is the New White, the best path to success no one told you about. His name, Josh Zolin. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Oh man, guys, thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. And uh, I can't hear that introduction enough. I got to tell you, you know, you take things on the day by day and it doesn't feel like you accomplished a lot. But when you tell it to me right now, whew, that's nice. I got goosebumps. <laughs> You're definitely crushing it, brother, for sure. And, you know, I love the title of that book. And, and you know, Dwayne and I came up with, you know, in the in the field, in the trades, you know what I mean? And we uh, we grew up and lived and breathed that for many years of our lives. So we have such respect for all the men and women out there busting their ass working and, and, you know, trying to make a better life for themselves and their families. So I'm super excited to dig into this book with you and, and understand a bit more about it and your overall philosophy with the trades. And I believe our, our audience would be very interested in, in where they're going and what uh, type of, you know, where the direction might be for people's thoughts on the trades coming up. So I'll reach out with the first question here with what was your mission for writing this book? What, what gave you the incentive or the excitement to do it? Yeah. So as you alluded you know, my my dad started this business, right? And and I didn't come into the business until about 
four or five years after he started it. And it was still him, just him at the time, right? So when I came on, it was me and him. And as we started to grow the business and bring people aboard and 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 really just, you know, expand our footprint out, um, it got me to realize how valuable technicians in the trades really are. Not just for from being a technician, right? Because I didn't spend my life in the office here. He He's very old school. And if I wanted any part of this business, I had to turn the wrenches in the trenches myself. And which I'm, I'm so thankful that I did. I did that for about 10 years. And um, it was one of those things where somewhere along the line, I want to say it was probably 2015, 2014, probably when we really started to get some traction underneath us, that I realized that not only are technicians paid very handsomely, right? And not only do they get all of these benefits that I, I never knew that they did until I tried hiring them, but nobody knows that. Nobody knew that, right? So here I am trying to find material on it and, you know, reaching out to guidance counselors of like from my old high school and stuff like that. And, and you know, nobody has information on, you know, what the trades actually offer. All I heard growing up was, you know, you got to go to college, you got to go to college, you got to go to college. And oh, if you can't cut it, you can go into the trades. And that was the narrative that I was brought up with. So once I realized that that was just a flat out lie, I felt the need to spread that message. And it was funny. I was laying in bed with my wife one night and complaining, I think, about, you know, how I couldn't find any any books or material on that would help me understand, you know, this career path. I mean, I found some articles and stuff like that online, but as far as tangible material, which I like to read, nothing was available. So she looked at me finally and was like, you always said you wanted to write a fucking book. So, you know, why don't you write this one? And I said, well, okay, well, you're allowed to be once, uh, write once in our marriage. So I like it. Let's do it. I'll do it. And and that's really what uh, what led to it. And it was very interesting, you know, how it all played out because I had never written a book before, you know. And so it was it was an interesting journey. But ultimately, you know, the whole reason I wrote it was there's this stigma or this perception that revolves around the trades, all industries, not just my industry. You guys know you came up in it, too right? That the trades are just second rate. They're a tier below a college education. They're a tier below a white collar job. And it's just not the case. And I thought that that message was important enough to spread. No, I love that, man. I love that. And, and you know, again, with Dwayne and I starting out in the trenches and yeah, I went to school for an associate's degree in design for, you know, architectural mechanical engineering. It wasn't the typical traditional, I mean, American uh, college experience. You know, I still worked and started the company during that time and had a part-time job too and all those things. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, I can feel you, man, because it's, there's that old adage of, you know, like you said, go to school, go to college, get a job, you know, live your life, cash out at 65, 70 years old and die in a few years, right? That's the old way it is. And, and thank God that's broken. And, you know, the, the trades have been, uh, my whole family's from trades, you know, so I get it, man. I, I love that world. And I don't, I believe you're if I could just interject on. something real quick, if you don't mind, I don't want anybody out there getting the wrong impression, right? I, I'm not against college mm -hmm. per se. I'm for the right education for the right individual. So if somebody grows up knowing they want to be a doctor, or a lawyer, or an accountant or whatever, I don't know what, you know, 12 year old kid wants to be an accountant, but you know, if that's the path they know they want to go, look, yeah. I got nothing against college. You know, I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner myself. It's just the ROI that's attached to college with the perception behind the trades that I yeah. have a problem with. Yeah, Josh, what did you want to become before you started working with your father? <laughs> so this is an interesting story. 
I grew up in the stunt business, right? And uh, as a stuntman, my my grandfather was a pioneer in the stunt industry. He doubled for Charles Bronson, worked with Chuck Norris. He was one of the first ones to actually be considered a stuntman. So uh, he started a school in California, uh, which then my mom and all my uncles uh, ran. And then my dad actually went through that stunt school. That's how he and my mom met. And so I grew up, that was the family business. I was a stuntman and I was the cool kid in high school that would jump off buildings and roll cars before he got a driver's license. And I lit myself on fire for an English project once and only got a B. Figure that one out. But, but you know, you say shit. <laughs> it was like one of the teachers. Like, you know, I lit myself on fire for this, and she was like, "Yeah, that's the problem." <laughs> so anyway, you know, that's what I that's what I grew up wanting to do, and so I actually moved out to California to pursue that line of work uh, before I realized there's a difference between what you know best and what you're actually passionate about. Yep, absolutely, man. That, that wow. you know best will only take you so far. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. No, that's cool, man. That's really yeah. cool. Stunt, like, it's a ver- do you still do any like do you still do any stunts and stuff like that? Like nah. you're not jumping you're not jumping off of air conditioning units. <laughs> well, there has been talk about doing safety videos and utilizing my stunt experience in that aspect. <laughs> It'll come back up to yeah. serve you well, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> this is sort of um a loaded I think it's wild that the three of us on here pretty much started with parents who were dabbling in some type of business. A little different is my father was dabbling in the business that was on the side. So he had a full-time job and he started from like a janitor and made it up to like the top dog at the company. And he had like this little landscaping, hauling, grass cutting business on the side. So when I got in, it was sort of don't do this, just do it on the side and get a job. And as I was building the business, he was sort of upset that I didn't go to a college because he actually worked at a college. So I had a full ride scholarship to go to a college. And I'm like, Dad, I don't want to go to that place. That (laughs) looks goofy. It looks nerdy. I want to do this. He was really upset at first in the beginning. And he did not see any success in what I was doing. Like it was a battle just to prove that I could do something. How was working with your father? And then how was you, you and him growing it? Like what was that like? That's a good question, you know, because I know that there's a lot of family dynamic stuff out there, especially working with uh, working with family and things like that. So um, let me preface this by saying that uh, my mom and my dad split back in 1990. Right. I was like six years old. So uh, growing up, I had only saw my dad every other weekend, um, you know, which which actually in hindsight only strengthened our relationship. So once I moved out to California, uh, he was in Arizona already at the time. Once we started working together, it was almost like making up for lost time, right? So I'm, I'm very blessed to have a fantastic relationship, you know, with my dad. And, and both of us complement each other very well in business, right? He's got that old school mentality, you know, that, that grit, that grind. And I've got the, the new school, you know, technology and visionary kind of, uh, kind of thing. So we complement each other very well. Of course, there's disagreements, you know, and at the end of the day, I give credit where credit is due. And look, I may be the CEO, but he's the one that started it with his own two hands. So if there's an agreement on something, usually I give him the uh, the upper hand on that. But it just works, you know. And, and again, I know that that's, that's rare and I'm, uh, I'm fortunate. So be that as it may, no complaints. 
That's yeah, awesome. that's very powerful. You guys can work together. It's really raw. And I worked with my father, so it's sort of the same thing. I just wanted, like, I would just follow him around. And so everything I did was watching him, and that's how I, I got in. It was going further in business. He didn't see that, and he wasn't bad with me about it, but he's just like, dude, don't go that route, because I don't know. It was like, I don't know what that route's like, and you could get hurt. You know what I mean? It's sort of how it was on that. So it's pretty dope you guys are able to pass off. How's the family dynamic? Are there any other brothers, sisters, things like that? I've got uh, a couple half-brothers and a half-sister. Half-brother and sister back in Wisconsin, where my mom still still lives, uh, on a farm out there. <laughs> and then I've got a half-brother on my dad's side that lives here, but uh, he's in real estate. You know, he likes that aspect of things. I like the trade aspect of things. Okay. That's awesome. Nice. And the cool part about all of us here is, you know, hearing your story and knowing Dwayne's story and... You know, my story is very similar, and I grew up in a, in a family business. You know, it was a garden center nursery business. My father was a meat manager at a local uh, supermarket where he managed that department. And, you know, and when we first started out, he kind of helped my mom on the side and then eventually came full-time on board. And then my brother and I and, and the family, we grew the business and had a great time. They're still running it today, 30-plus years later. So it was it was great to grow up in that dynamic. I learned, you know, an insane work ethic. I learned, you know, how to work through just about any weather, how to help people, how to, you know, how to sell, how to help people buy. And all of those things came from just years and years of helping out with the family business. There's, you know, I know a lot of people listening have grown up in a similar model where they get into, you know, business with family members and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, right? So it's good to see that some do work and that or at least they get you started in a way that get you in the right direction. It's really cool. That's right. Absolutely. Nothing replaces experience either. That's for sure. Yeah. So Josh. Time and life does, but yeah. I'll tell you what. That, <laughs> if you want it. some experience, just live. Shit, you will get experience. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure, man. Ready, fire, aim, baby. <laughs> yeah. So what do, you think, uh, what do you think happened to the trades, Josh? Why aren't they sexy anymore? Yeah. So there's a there's a lot of answers to this question and there's a, a very literal answer. I'll start with the literal answer, right? And that's that at one point in time the trades and and trades jobs and careers were so abundant that chances are if you were employed, it was in the trades, right? And that's uh, the industrial age and and stuff like that. While moving a little forward through time, then another promise came onto the scene with college. Right. And and so the promise was, hey, you don't have to get dirty. Hey, you don't have to do this type of work. This work is hard. You don't have to do the hard. You can use your brain instead of your hands. And that narrative worked for a while. It worked really well, you know, because parents naturally want what's best for their children. So they went to college. They sent their kids to college. And at one point in time, that was really great advice because a college degree meant exactly what the promise was, a good, high paying career that could offer you fulfillment and, and everything throughout your life. But then what happened? The supply of the tradespeople went way down. The supply of a college degree went way, way up, right? And suddenly the trades themselves became so scarce that it drove the wages way up. And then, of course, there's advancements in safety and processes, procedures, all of this stuff, cultures, right? Company cultures, so all of this stuff pivoted, okay? And, and now the college degree, typical college degree, you know, if you don't know what you want to do for the rest of your life, typically you're recommended to go to college and you'll figure it out along the way. And then you end up getting a business degree and working at Starbucks or whatever. And so 
But in the meantime, these trades jobs, the wages just keep going up and up and up, right? But we haven't been able to shift our perception back from the, oh, this white collar route is way, way better in so many different aspects than the blue collar route. And so now we're still waiting for that that stigma to come back around, which I think we're on the right track, you know, but I think that was the the main driver of the perception of the trades, right? And then there was a bunch of little stuff like media portrayals and things like that. Think about uh, Putty from Seinfeld, you know, being upset that uh, they called him a grease monkey, you know, or whatever it was. And, and you know, you've got the Mike Rowe posters that he's talked about before, work smart, not hard, you know, and, and a guy, a mechanic on one side and a, a college graduate on the other, you know, so all of these things compounded and really just ingrained this idea in our head that blue collar work is bad. Yeah. You know, um, as you were saying that, it, it reminds me of just back in the day, I, I had this whole vivid picture. I was cutting grass on a property out in McDonald's. And as I was cutting grass, I had this girlfriend who actually uh, she was doing very well. She had a BMW. And I remember she came up to see me as I was cutting grass and I hopped off the lawnmower you mean, talked to her a little bit and gave her a kiss. You mean, she's in the BMW to hop back. And, you know, I actually had the problem. I felt like, man, I'm messing with this chick. She has BMWs. She has a nice house. I mean, doing well in business. And I was actually doing pretty well in business. But I'm on these lawnmowers. I mean, cutting grass. And and the level of what I was was actually lowered at that moment. So I, I see what you're talking about. Do you think this has a lot to do with, with wages, too? Yeah, I mean, um, at, at one point it did, right? Because the wages for a college degree typically were higher at one point than the wages in in the blue-collar world. But that dynamic has since shifted, you know, which I think is what's generating a lot more of this intrigue uh, that we're seeing as of late to the skilled trades. So, yeah, I think wages have something to do with it. But you actually bring up a really good point, Dwayne, you know, that uh, that self-fulfilling prophecy part of it. Right back in the the 1960s, 1970s, there was a, a course called the industrial arts, right in in high school, and the industrial arts turned into shop class, essentially. But what the problem was that in these schools in the school system, who went into industrial arts? The rebels, the rejects, if you will, the troublemakers, the people that other people assumed just weren't smart enough to make it anywhere else, right? So not only did that in help ingrain that perception, but it helped ingrain that perception in people's own minds that were going that route because they thought they were there because they were stupid. Yeah. So our society has sort of been doing this to We've been doing this to ourselves is what you're saying. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Now, Josh, mm. is it this way in all countries or most countries around the world, industrialized countries, or is this an American-only thing? Like, how do you see this playing out around the world? So as far as I can tell, and look, I, I don't claim to be worldly or anything like that. I do talk to a lot of people on my podcast from all over the world. And I think that there are some areas where the trades are still very highly regarded, even on the same plane as, uh, as a college education. And there are some places uh, that it's just not, not regarded as much, like, uh, like in the States. Mm -hmm. you know? So it's, it's hit or miss, but I, I know that a lot of European countries, I believe, value the trades quite a bit. Germany, I believe, is one of them. You know, 
Turkey values the trades. I talked to uh, somebody from Turkey a few months back. They value the trades, but they don't have the the structure really in place to really back that initiative. So, you know, the, there's there's regard, uh, but it does vary from country to country as far as I can tell. You know, my wife's from Germany and we travel there, you know, pretty often. And it, what's really, really impressive to me is their you know, exactly that, how much that they, they value the trades. Trades are as valuable as a doctor or a lawyer. I mean, they are the yes. same level because there's a lot of education that goes into trades. You can't just grab a, you know, a magnetic sign, stick it on your truck and turn out to be a, a landscaper or whatever. Like you've got to go through and actually get a degree in it and some kind of a schooling. And there's, there's an actual accreditation system there so that not just anybody can show up. There's a standard that's been created, right? So that's what gives it that that more of a value to society. So I, that's something I think we lack here in the U.S. because I love the fact that it's it's freedom. You can just go and do stuff. Some some people do amazing with it and others suck royally. You know what I mean? And they, there's yes. no standard to it. There's, thank goodness, that's electricians right. and plumbers, they all have to be at a certain standard and have their, their uh, licenses and things like that, thank goodness. But so many don't. And that's really what I think kills the image to trades because anybody could stumble in drunk and become something, you know what I mean? It's some of these different things. And that's, that's really where it becomes more, you know, less valuable to people. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, that circles us back to the personal responsibility part of it, right? Which I'm a, I'm a huge, huge stickler for, for personal responsibility. And, you know, in the trades, you really have no choice. If you can't grasp that personal responsibility portion of it, then you have no business being in the trades. You just can't do it. Because you're 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 working with your hands, you're building things, you're fixing things, you're you know people are depending on you in in many different aspects. So if you're a finger pointer, as we say, you know, you're not going to get very far. But that's also where the opportunity is, right? Because if it does get to a standard like in Germany, you know, where there's there's accredited courses and things like that, you know that we're going to capitalize on that, just like the colleges capitalized on a college degree. Which is fine. Look, I'm not against capitalism by any means. I own a business, you know, I, and that's just who I am. But the opportunity still exists right now. Trade schools, a, a fraction of the price, you know, as you alluded to, apprenticeships are free. You're actually getting paid to learn, you know, but if you're that guy who stumbles in off the street, just thinking you're going to earn a big paycheck in this super awesome field, you've got another thing coming. It's still a lot of work. There's still a lot of training that goes into it. And there's still a lot of knowledge that you need to have in order to be successful. One of the family members, my wife's family, she was dating a guy and he was a painter. So house painting, whatever, you know, painting in general, right? And we had a conversation, a deep conversation about what it took to be a painter in Germany. And I assumed like here, you just grab a truck, throw a can of paint in the back and a paintbrush, you're a painter. It's really simple. You file for, you know, the acknowledgement with the state and get your numbers and the federal, you know, the IRS and all that, and you're good to go. But for him, he's like, you have no idea. Like we're sitting in this very nice restaurant and we're looking around and he's explained to me how, because it was done well, like exactly how it was done and how the brush strokes and the type of brushes they use and the different materials they use and how many layers and with different angles, like all kinds of stuff that I, I can't even see. It's like its own language. He said, but this is stuff that we have to learn before we can even pick up a paintbrush. And I'm like, dude, I'm 42 years old and I've never heard half the shit you just said. And I've painted things before. He's like, <laughs> it's a whole different animal. And that's that's where I think it's lacking here. Not, not that I'm a guy's listening here. I'm not like saying, look, everybody has to go out and take this insane test. But it's a, it's a matter of if everybody in all of our industries, all the tradespeople would, would come to a certain standard within their industry, all of us 
would have higher respect amongst our clients. All of us would have higher pay. All of us would have a higher standing in society. So we all win this way, all by just standardizing what we should be offering and the expectations our clients will be getting from you know what we're doing. So that's that's really the cool part about all of this stuff. So yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Sure. Yeah, tons of opportunities. So all right, so let's let's play devil's advocate here, right? All right, I'm 20 years old. I'm trying to figure out what the hell I want to do with my life. I'm trying some stuff here and there, making some money. You know, I figured, you know, I see people that are out there, you know, knocking off six figures being a YouTuber. Why the hell would I want to get my hands dirty? Like what what would be in it for me to to sweat and get my hands dirty and do what those guys do? Why wouldn't I just play with the YouTube side? What's what's in it for me? Tell me, Josh. Why would yeah. I do it? Yeah, no, that's I love that question. I love that scenario because it's real life. Yep. Right. I mean, that's what kids look at they, that YouTuber or Instagram sensation or, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. And yeah, that's where the trades have a marketing problem. Right. And because uh, typically the trades are just not sexy and that's what we're working to change. But to answer your question a little bit more bluntly, it's looking past that veil. Right. The things that the trades will allow you to accomplish from an experience standpoint. I mean, I talk about travel a lot in the trades. You know, I have to send my technicians all over the country for training, for jobs. Here's a good example, right? There's a place in Arizona here inside the Grand Canyon called Phantom Ranch. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's they just recently switched to a, a lottery system. But before they switched to a lottery system, you had to book like four years in advance because this place is just so highly coveted, right? The only way to get down there is by mule or by helicopter. And we had a call at Phantom Ranch to fix one of their griddles because we're the authorized service agent for that griddle. And so I had guys with their hands up saying, no, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity that I get to do here because this is the trade that I that I do. So of course we begged the manufacturer to let us take a helicopter down there because the footage would have been ridiculous. A Windy City technician repelling from a helicopter with a tool bag into <laughs> Phantom Ranch, come on. You know, Love that. but he did have to take the mule down, which he still curses my name to this day, but enjoyed the experience nonetheless. And I've got a ton more stories like that too. So travel is a big one. Experience is a big one. You don't know where the trades can take you. And that's number one. Number two, the pride factor, right? How many times have you been driving down the street and saying, hey, I did that yard or, hey, look, I, I put in that plumbing or, hey, you see that office building over there? I did all those windows, you know, on the second floor. You see those? That's the stuff that tradespeople are proud of, right? I mean, I know that we all know that. And so that's another aspect of it, being able to be proud of something that you do because you can step back and actually see it. You, you actually know that you created something or you breathed life into something. And so that's the kind of stuff in here. That's the fulfillment stuff and that you don't hear a whole lot about, right? And then the other thing I like to say is that right now we talk about opportunities, but the trades is a prime example of a white space, right? We need all types of people in the trades. We need technicians, of course, but we also need dispatchers, we need marketers, we need managers, we need salespeople. I mean, there are there's an endless amount of talent that we need in the industry. So it's not all about getting your hands dirty. And we need that new way of thinking because typically the trades are comprised of the older generation. And, you know, so much so is they're retiring at a rate of five to one compared to people coming into the trades. So, but but those people coming into the, the trades 
have that next generation mindset, have the technology behind them. So there's an opportunity there to really mold an entire industry into what it's going to look like tomorrow. And how many industries can you say that about? True. No, I love that. Josh, how do you bridge the gap? Because trades are like, let's see if I can explain. I probably just tell a quick little breakdown and understand it. Someone getting in a trade is almost like race car drivers, basketball players, and football players. Like their fathers and their uncles were doing it, and then they followed suit. And so we have this huge gap right now. How do we get people back into just the, the dynamics of being trades if their father wasn't in the trades at all? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's a collective responsibility. And I think it starts with the, the companies and the trades themselves, right? You have to appeal to who you want to appeal to. And, you know, that's, that's really important because nobody's going to want to, if they don't have family in the trades, like you said, nobody's even going to want to look into it, right? So these companies first have to be appealing. That means they have to have a company culture. They mean it means that they have to have specific values. It means that they have to use the newest technology if they want any shot at attracting the next generation, right? But then you go into the school system and this stuff doesn't have, I mean, we don't have to start off by saying, you know, the trades are the best thing that could ever happen to you. We just have to let people know that they exist and let people know what opportunities are there within them. I saw, uh, I don't know if you guys know who uh, Jamie McMillan is with Kick-Ass Careers, but she's out of Canada. And she actually made a coloring book for kids, right? And, and we're talking about seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old kids. And it's called All the Kids on Builder Street. And all it is is introducing them to, hey, you see that building over there? Somebody actually had to make that. Oh, you see that doctor? That doctor can't practice if that building doesn't exist, if that hospital doesn't exist. Oh, you see that race car driver over there? He's got nothing to race if the mechanic doesn't fix the car. You know, so we got to look past face value and we have to start at a young age. Obviously, this is all long-term thinking. I can't help but look 30 years into the future. It's just part of who I am. But I think that's where, that's where we'll start to see an influx of people who don't already have ties to the trades. I love that. And I, you know, I honestly agree. I, I believe that it's going to be a big awakening coming soon. You know, with so many people out there wanting to, you know, to create and to build and to kind of leave their thumbprint on this world. You know, there's a lot more mission driven people out there. And I believe the trades are a perfect, perfect opportunity for people. I mean, most of our, our specialists coming in to do our projects, we do, you know, a lot of outdoor living projects, you know, building cool spaces outside, some of the coolest, even more cool than inside the house, right? But most of our people are coming in, uh, they're Amish or Mennonite, right? So we talk about, you know, a, a trade and a skill that is passed generation to generation. It is incredible how focused they are and how how uh, much they love what they do. It's not what they do, it's who they are. It's If we could just extrapolate that into to the regular society, right? Take it out of the, the area where it is and just make it more cool all the way through. Because when they talk to each other, they're all very proud of what they do and they are freaking rock stars at it, right? Because they are super uber focused on being the very best in their in their niche, whatever it might be. And they become the craftsmen of the area. Everybody knows how amazing they are at what they do. Now, take that and put it into American society where if you're a landscaper or even a grass cutter and you just have like everybody's standard is at that level, then people are like, wow, cool. You, you mean you actually 
do that. You actually, you know, go out and, and, and plant plants and make amazing outdoor spaces for people to live in. And you, you're a mason, you're a carpenter. Like there could be a really cool spin to all of that. And people could be really proud of that if society picked it up and put it in the tabloids where instead of the Kardashians, you're actually talking about this carpenter who just did this incredible feat, you know, and made something that never was before. And now people can enjoy it and use it and, and make that cool. You know what I mean? So it's really a matter of what becomes uh, part of that mainstream media machine. I think that's really where it starts is to just start. And even through all the sitcoms and crap people watch on TV, if they brought it back instead of it being people laying around, you know, just being stupid people <laughs> mostly on TV, right? <laughs> instead of it just being that and sitcom crap, they'd actually have families working hard together to build stuff. You see some of that stuff on some of the the shows where it's either they're out on a ranch in Montana and the families are all together working. I'm thinking of Yellowstone, you know, that's kind of a crazy ex extreme example, but it's like a family working together, kind of doing something. They're in the trades. They're still physically working and sweating and all those kinds of things. So to bring that back to mainstream is cool and get rid of the people who are just laying around bitching about life. That would be a big step up, but I don't know whether that'll ever happen. <laughs> we can always hope, right? Yeah. You know, and that's and that's hard, right? Because it's just we you're absolutely right. We're up against mainstream media, and I don't know how many of those battles you can win. <laughs> yeah. We, I mean, it won't stop us from trying, of course, but but you make a, a a really good point. You know, oh man, and I get frustrated all the time seeing this shit. You know, I just yep. I get myself into trouble because of things that I say. So I'm trying to be super conscious right now. Don't yeah. be conscious. Let her fly, baby. <laughs> Yeah, and Josh, here's the other thing, too, is and it, this is really I mean, I, I think a really strong question is that when you're looking at the trades, you mostly see the owner of the company of the trade is the one making the money and employees or not. How, how how do we look at that perception You of it? That's hard. I think that's hard because that's that's in any business, I think, especially the trades. Obviously, because people, a lot of people just don't know what the technicians make, what the employees make. And there's really, how do you present that to somebody without disclosing things you shouldn't disclose or without, yeah, you know what I'm trying to say, but it, it's very difficult. And I wish we could get people to understand, like I've got several people on my staff pulling six figures and people don't see that. They see, oh, pfft, that guy's probably making 16, 17 bucks an hour. Like I wish you know yeah, but yeah. no that's not how it is and and you know the other part of it too is it's even talking about getting past the mindset it's it's even hard being the business owner and the employees thinking that as well because they see what you're charging and nothing against them i have the utmost respect for for what they do on a daily basis and i show that on a daily basis but there's a reason why i have my executive staff doing they're doing and the technicians doing what they're doing the technicians are are wildly good at what they do fixing the equipment and they love it but when they see that we're charging $110 an hour but they're making $40 an hour which is a fantastic wage right mm -hmm. it's still to close that gap, it's yeah. left up to the imagination. And I can say as yeah, much as yeah. I want, well, you know, you got to take into account insurance and taxes and uniforms and phones and office staff and computers and internet and all this other stuff. It still doesn't register. I think and, it's all gravy. Until you actually see yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it's yeah. hard. If you're charging 110 and they're making 40, they're actually making more than you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Can you come in and like talk to my team. You know, just 
Uh, I, another one, just from what you're saying, I can really tell just your energy that you have a lot of feeling towards your staff and your employees. What are you saying and what are you doing to maintain that type of synergy in the company, that mm. culture? Man, you had, you ask all the good questions, man. <laughs> I, I love that. No, that's, that's a really good question because that is probably the most difficult part of my job, right? We have, I want to say we have 55 employees now, something like that. And it really is, you're dealing with all these different people, all these different personalities and trying to get everybody to row in the same direction. And it's, that's, that's hard. That's difficult. I think the biggest thing, number one is, is having the vision, right? Is being able to say in 10 years, the company is going to be here, right? That's the first step. The second step is getting your leadership team on board, right? Because everything's going to cascade from that leadership team. And so if you can't have a vision, if you can't get your leadership team on board, there's no way in hell that your employees are going to follow you anywhere. They're just not, you know, because even number one, they're all going to have their own vision of where they should go, where the company should go. Right. And they're all going to be rowing in that direction. So you're not going to have that synergy that you need to really build the business and, and move the business forward in a, in a tangible direction. But once you have that vision, once you get the leadership team on board and they can start helping their their direct reports see, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel, if you will, and, and what we're trying to accomplish, then, you know, that's what creates that synergy. And then it's got to be a constant effort, right? It goes into the, the values for your organization. It goes into the culture that you build. Are you going to be that company that screams and berates everybody? Or are you going to be that company that, you know, can pull somebody aside and say, hey, you know what? You fucked up. I know you can do better. And this is how you do better. If you have any questions, I'm here for you. Because there's a big difference, right? You have to hold people accountable. They have to be held accountable. And uh, But you can't do it, especially now, you can't do it in a way that is going to kill their morale. Because if they leave, you're not finding somebody else, at least not yeah. quickly. <laughs> yeah, that actually segues, yeah. beautiful explanation. But I, that segues right into my next question would be, you know, our listeners, and I think it's it's throughout all the trades, right? They're struggling to find good tradesmen to work. They're really struggling, especially people out there, you know, landscaping, lawn cutters, the outdoor living guys, the pay relayers, all those guys. They're, it's a sweaty, tough job. So, you know, really, is there any advice you could share with them to help them attract and retain, you know, A players in their business? Especially if they're starting out. This is would be a good question for them is because they don't really have the confidence of, of 20 years of, you know, tons of workforce. But how would you say A to get started and B, how do we hold on to those guys and find them? Yeah, I think that's the question that everybody is asking right now. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to steal some advice I just recently got from my latest podcast guest. His name is Ryan England. Uh, he owns a company called Core Matters, and he does exactly this, right? He he doesn't recruit per se, but he coaches companies on how to recruit themselves. And that's what we all in the trades need to learn how to do, essentially. I said it before, but you have to be attractive to those who you want to attract. And what I mean by that is, you know, look at your marketing. Your marketing, nine times out of ten, probably 9.9 .9 times out of 10 is geared towards customers. It's it, That's really what the marketing department does most of the time. And you're putting out all this stuff. We do great quality work and, you know, we can, you know, beat anybody's price and, you know, we can do all of this stuff. But what are you doing 
to actually portray that same message, but to people you want to hire, not people you want to service. And so that's a jumping off point, right? Being able to capture that into a brand and then carry that brand through the employment process. Because the number one, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you guys know this and probably a lot of your listeners too, but the number one way to get A players in your team is to have somebody already on your team recruit somebody, somebody that they know, somebody that they've run into, somebody that, you know, is connected to them in one way, shape or form. And I mean, that's of 55 people on my staff. I think two maybe are here from Indeed and the rest are referrals from everybody else in the company. Like, hey, this is a great place to work. Why don't you come here? And they're hard on you, but they're hard on you because we want to be the best and we are the best and we're going to continue to be the best. But when you hear that from somebody within your organization, that's going to cause a lot of people to jump. And, you know, additionally, I think it's something like 75% of job seekers are passive, right? Which means they're not actively looking for jobs. They're in a job right now that maybe they're currently unhappy with, or they just don't feel they belong there, or there's any growth there, whatever it may be, but they stay, right? They stay because number one, they're getting paid. And number two, switching careers or switching jobs is up there, you know, with a major life event, like buying a house or having a loved one pass away, you know, I mean, these major life events. And so they're not going to jump and they're not going to put their resume out, right? And chances are, if somebody's looking for a job, can't speak for everyone, but most of the time there's a fucking reason, right? And that's what I've found personally in, in my business. So yeah, there's there's a lot of different areas that you can try to explore, but I'd say make sure you're marketing to technicians not j- or potential employees, not just customers, and turning every person on your team into a recruiter. How important is mission in attracting people when your company has a clear mission on what it's trying to achieve? Maybe maybe it's numbers, maybe it's just your impact on the world. Like how important is that is to, to get people rallied up and in and and on the ship and kind of rolling forward and locked in? It's important. I think that I would I would put that in the same classification as vision and having something that we're all working towards accomplishing, right? Is is kind of how I view how I view that mission. And I think it, it really is the starting point for everything else. That and the values. Right. If if you don't have that mission clear and defined, then nobody knows why they're there in the first place, aside from getting a paycheck. But if everybody on your team is just there for a paycheck, then what's to stop them from going to get another paycheck for 50 cents an hour or more somewhere else. It's got to be clear. And especially in a leadership position, it's your job to make it clear. The, the company, and I'm speaking to the owners out there right now, but the company is a reflection of you. If you know where you want to go, you know where you want your company to go. All right. Just clean it up a little bit, put it in a nice little package and put it out for everybody to see. Because that it doesn't matter. I think Simon Sinek said this, right? It doesn't matter what the why is so long as there is one. And I see that kind of in the same box as a mission or a vision. Yeah, I love that, man. I love it. And it's it's incredible how that stirs the the excitement within the team when you all have the same mission in mind and, and the same overall character and things like that within the organization. Because then you can move mountains, no problem at all, because you're all rowing in the same direction, you know, and it's 
and to your point of having you know the 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 business is no more than a reflection of the owner's mindset right if, if he's got fears or she's got fears then the business has those same fears if they have strengths and confidences it's the same thing there so if you want a business to grow you owners out there if you want to grow your business you've got to grow your mind you've got to change your mindset you've got to adjust it and have it grow because if you don't you're going to get stuck just what it is there's no way around that, man. If you have some kind of a workaround, let me know. But I haven't met anybody and all the people I've met in my life that have a workaround, man. It's all the internal hard work. You got to do the reps in order to grow and become the person you need to be in order to get to the level you need to go, right? It's all about that journey. Back to that personal responsibility, right? You exactly. Don't, don't keep pointing fingers at your employees unless you're ready to point the finger at yourself. That's exactly it. Yeah, because if, if they have a problem, it's because you haven't taught them well enough. If you take that responsibility on, then there's nothing stopping you and you give up that responsibility or give up that power to them and say, well, they're idiots. They just did it wrong. No, your systems aren't good enough. Your training isn't good enough and you better get your ass out there. And if they're just people that won't line up and do what you've taught them three, four, five times, then they need to go somewhere else or find another position within your organization that maybe they're better, you know, communicating a different way. Maybe it's not through a trade. Maybe it's through something in the office or whatever it might be. It doesn't matter, but the main thing is to find, you know, each person find their niche where they want to be. Because I believe as an organization, when everybody's rowing in the same direction, again, you can accomplish anything. But when it comes down to finding people who have the same mission in mind, like they say, for instance, they want to serve, they love to serve and create things, right? Solve problems. When you have a ton of problem solvers on your team, it's impossible to stop you because there's always a group working toward helping you solve problems, right? And if, if you want to be creative and you've got a creative group that you're working with, my goodness, your entire team just explodes because you have all this creativity built in. But if it's one person's job to be creative and the other person's job to answer the phone and there's no cross-pollination there, you know, as a team, we get down every once a week, we sit down for a couple of hours and we talk about all our projects that are going on, all of us, regardless of where you are in the business, right? And we talk about different design ideas. We throw them back and forth. And it's not just the designer that's bringing it to the table. It could be my director of operations. She'll come up with an awesome idea and throw it on the board and be like, what do you think of this, guys? And we're like, that's freaking awesome. Like, I fucking love that. Like, all right, design team, you like this? What would we do different here? Like, it just becomes this thing. You know, it just keeps growing, but it's because of the fact that we all want to achieve more as a team and not just that's your job and that's your job and that's your job. It's huge. There's a lot of truth in that. Actually, just the other day, one of my dispatchers brought me a schedule, a new new way of doing the schedule. And we're thinking about switching up the entire company based on this, yeah. you know, and we could realize hundreds of thousand dollars of savings and a gigantic boost in morale. And you just don't know, right? You just don't know where this stuff is going to come from. That's exactly. Yeah. And, and letting your people know that they have the power to make you know, to bring those things to the table, to empower them, to know that they have control over their future by an exact example like that. You have a better idea than I do. Please bring it to the table. I am not the smartest guy here. If I am the smartest guy here, I'm in the wrong room. I want to be surrounded by people that are 10x my, my intelligence because then we can do some cool stuff. But if you always want to stand on top of your soapbox and yell at everybody, no one's going to bring any ideas to the table. They're all going to keep their mouth shut because they're afraid they're going to get their head cut off. So keep your mouth shut as a business owner, right? And listen to your people because you'd be surprised how smart they truly are. Yeah, it's really absolutely. Cool. That's awesome. So if there's, is there any books that you would recommend and besides your book, of course, and I want you to talk about that. And why don't we just start there? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your book, where they can find it and all that kind of stuff. And if you have any other books that uh, you would recommend reading in this, you know, in this uh, subject that could help business owner startups and established businesses really fire off and grow. 
Yeah, so my book is available on Amazon. Paperback, hardcover, audio, all of that. Uh, just search Blues the New White. You'll be able to find it, no problem. Or go to bluesthenewwhite.com. Got it on there as well. Super easy to find. And, man, I hate when people ask for book recommendations because I read constantly, right? I, I've got book after... If I could turn the camera around and show you my bookshelf right now. <laughs> one of these. <laughs> as far as a business book, I'm trying to think of one of the, the ones that I went read recently. You know, I love the classics. I, I read the classics once a year or so. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Those ones that everybody knows. The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I think that was a very good book. I don't know if you guys have read that one. But that's by Ben Horowitz. Uh, it's based in, on a Silicon Valley company, but a lot of a lot of good information for uh, startups and things like that uh, in that book. You're the second there person was, that's told me about that book this week. Uh, so it's next on the list. Oh, really? I usually take those as signs and pick up that book right away. Good to Great is another classic. You know, I'm a big guy for, for asking questions, right? I'm always trying to hone my question asking ability because I really think that that's the key not only to learning but also to leadership. So there's a book out there called The, the Book of Beautiful Questions that was good too. Uh, and then you mentioned listening. There's a book called Just Listen. That one was just okay. I'm not going to say that it was my favorite or anything, but it was good. There's some some good information in that one as well. You know, Josh, you see a successful man, you ask him, he reads books, like period. Like if you see someone yep. like I've learned this, and especially Joshua and I went to an event last this year, and every time I saw some guys who I thought was very successful, the first thing I, I got was their book list. Like, give me, I, I don't care how much money you're making. I don't care how many planes you bought. I didn't care about any of that. I didn't want to hear nothing about your boat. I want to hear what you read, you know what I mean? Because you didn't build, you and your father did not build this company to where it is today without reading books and seminars and studying. You you just didn't work. You know what I mean? It's one thing about working in the trade, but you also, you got to educate your brain while you're working in the trade. And that's how you elevate the trade itself. So man, good job. And thanks. Like, um, matter of fact, let's, I didn't get the list of that last one. So we got to figure out how to get that done. Cause I was trying to get it bought while I was talking to you. I'll, I'll shoot you guys a list. (laughs) Okay. That'd be awesome. I'll shoot you guys a list of some cool books. No, I appreciate that. And we will share them with our listeners for sure. So anything else you want to say or any other little gold nuggets you want to bestow on our listeners here before we wrap up, Josh? Oh, man. I don't know about gold nuggets. I just uh, I appreciate you guys having me on the show. I appreciate everybody you know, lending me their time and lending all of us their time and, and letting us bend their ear a little bit. And just keep pushing the trades. Uh, if you're in the trades, you know, make sure that when you talk about the trades, you, you do it justice, right? You talk about the things that you're proud of. You talk about, you know, what you've accomplished. You talk about what opportunities are available and where you can take it. And especially when you're talking to the next generation, it starts with us. Everything and everything starts with us. Personal responsibility. Yep. I think Gandhi said it best when he said, be the change you want to see in the world. So if you want trades to be the focus, you know, we just have to emulate that. And as you're doing, man, speaking the good word. So I appreciate you, Josh, and everything. And guys, the book is the uh, Blue is the New White, available on Amazon. Grab a copy. And uh, I know you'll be excited about what he's got in there. He's an awesome guy. And all right, Josh, I appreciate you being on the show here. And uh, good luck with everything, man. Just keep crushing it. Likewise, Joshua, Dwayne, thank you very much. All right. Hey, thanks for being on the show, too. 